What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? My name is Ryan Rainbow, and this is the Meet Meet podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records one by one, year by year, with the people that made them and the musicians they influenced. Like I said on the intro, right now we're in 1997 with the band so good at marketing, they have their stickers in every doctor's office in America, Biohazard. In 97, they released their second and final album for the label, No Holds Barred, Live in Europe. Famously, years earlier, Biohazard signed to Warner Brothers, but Yakko and Wacko wanted the band to get a little street cred, so they worked out a deal with their 92, soon-to-be classic Urban Discipline album, and that would come out on Roadrunner which then WB would take over the contract from there. Now in 97, between labels again, Biohazard releases No Holds Barred, which was a live album for their Mataleo tour. And joining me to discuss, among other things, his time with Roadrunner is Billy Graziadei, or as his friends call him, Billy. No Holds Barred comes out in 97 on Roadrunner Records, live album recorded in Germany. But before that, leading up to it, there's the shows that end up being OzFest 96 that you guys also play on. But you're never actually on OzFest. I remember doing an interview with Julia from, remember, remember Julia? Yeah, Uranium. Uranium. And um, <laughs> we were. she asked the same question. How come you guys never played OzFest? You did, and we are like, oh, we did one show. And we didn't get into the story because Evan literally dropped the bomb and said, you know, I'll tell you why. I said, even though there's a deeper reason, um, he said, everybody, all you guys think that the bands that are on OzFest are the new cool bands. But reality is they pay $60,000 to get on OzFest. And we're not going to pay that kind of money. If you want us to play OzFest, we'll play it. But the reality is that those tours, that's how they work. And even to this day, it still works like that. You buy onto those shows, and all the young kids think that the, the flavor of the of the month is a cool new band. They're on Ozfest because they were paid <laughs> to, to be on Ozfest, you know, and all this other shit. So um, it was funny though. He, he, you know, it's everybody knows that in the industry, but you don't really talk about it. And he just called it right out, and uh, I looked at him like, dude, we're definitely not getting Ozfest now. <laughs> He's like, we're never gonna get anyways. That is funny, though. So why does this live album even exist? And why does it come out on Roadrunner? Monty Connor and the relationship I had with Roadrunner, we had, 
and there was no other label that I've ever been involved with that had the same kind of energy, same kind of vibe where it, you knew that the people that were there working there were there because they could get one fucking free tickets to shows and two, they fucking love music. And three, the paycheck didn't matter. It wasn't about the money. It was because it was just about the music, about the scene. And Roadrunner was like the epicenter of all the, that was going on in the early 90s. That was fucking awesome. Monty Connor single-handedly signed probably the bands, the most bands that changed and revolutionized a lot of the scene around that, you know, the metal genre. From Biohazard to Life Agony, Typo Negative, Sepultura, Fear Factory, you know, and when we got a chance to work with Roadrunner, it was a quick one and done thing. We did Urban Discipline and we went right on to um, Warner Brothers. And ironically, now Warner Brothers owns Roadrunner. So it's like the live record came back. We had we had that in our back pocket and we had another chance. We, we left Warner Brothers and went to Universal, I think. And it was a we got another chance to work with Roadrunner. I was like, fuck it, let's do it. So we did another one off with them and it was a great record. 99, I went to the Amazing Jekyll Brothers tour. That's a great one. We were on uh, Universal together and that was with Leo Cohen, Russell Simmons. Oh, sorry, that was our management company. Leo Cohen was running Universal. He's a group. Um, and the guys in ICP were doing a tour, and it was Biohazard. It's Biohazard, initially Cold yes. Chamber, who were replaced by Mindless Chamber. Self-Indulgence. Yep. Twisted. That's what it was. Yep. It was, uh, that, that tour was fucking crazy, bro. Lots of fucking wild, crazy times, and I had no, known Mindless Self-Indulgence. I remember Twisted was also on the tour. Dez and the guys in Cold Chamber had some beef with ICP. We got on great with ICP. We just seemed to gel. I don't know. Maybe it was Detroit, New York thing and the LA vibe and Detroit didn't fit well. The, the Cold Chamber guys were cool. We had a great time with them. But um, they just had some beef and then they went on Howard Stern, brought their shit out in the open and and they were off the tour. I remember ICP was like, fuck Cold Chamber. We want Biohazard opened up for us and they moved us up so we were direct support and then mindless self and Dalton's came out and opened up the tour who are i knew them from new york but it became real close with those guys they were fucking awesome they went out to do great things and uh i remember every night the kids the jugglers hated them but uh they stuck to their guns and jimmy yearn was like he'd go out every night after the show and he'd be like when i say we you say suck and I was one of the first bands I to do this. A bunch of people jumped on, jumped on that later. But and then the kids would throw fucking quarters at them, and and they hated them. But they did the same thing every night. They, they stuck to their guns. And Jimmy backstage one night is like, you know, they hate they hate us, and they hate me especially. But I I make about twenty five bucks a night because I got all the beer money I need. And I can afford a burger, and it's a great tour. So he would collect the change that they threw at him. Anyways, that tour was fucking awesome. Is that where you met MSI? Because you do a remix for them of Straight to Video years later. I met them in New York, but touring with them, when you tour bands, you get pretty close. And that was a blast to tour with them. And we did, I had a band called Suicide City, Biohazard split up, and I was doing Suicide City. 
and we they took me out, took us out on tour, and then after that we did some more stuff together, and then I did a remix, did like a Suicide City style remix of their song. So here's my story about Suicide City, Monty. So I think we we played CBGBs. It, it was like right at the end of CBGBs. Did a live DVD, sold it out, um, and. Uh, Mike Gitter was coming to see us. Mike saw us like at one of our first shows with Suicide City. And I known him from the hardcore scene for years. And Monty was always a bio. He signed me with Biohazard. He did the live record. I, I sent him songs. When we played CBs, I think Monty came to see us too, but Gitter wanted to sign us. And I remember telling our manager, I'm like, oh, I love Gitter, great guy, but Monty's my guy. I want to sign, you know, I got a deal. He's always done my stuff, did everything with Biohazard, blah, blah, blah. And the way it worked was that I kind of, you know, looked a gift horse in the mouth and didn't sign with Roadrunner. And at the beginning of it, of the band, they were interested in signing the band. And I was like, yeah, let's, we want to be a demo band. We want to go out and smell each other and, you know, live on people's floors. And looking back now, bro, I was like, because I, I did start a power flow with Send Dog and I did, now I got a solo band, Billy Bio. I should have just said, yeah, fuck yeah, let's go with fucking Roadrunner. Let's do the record. Because right after that, the fucking bottom fell out of the, you know, the music industry and MP3s completely destroyed everything, made the whole industry turn around and try to sign bands or 360 deals. And we ended up after selling like 10,000 copies of our demo and toured with everybody from Taking Back Sunday, Mindless Self-Indulgence, Guar. OTEP, we did Danzig, the Horror Pops. We did like five or six U.S. tours in a fucking van, bro. And it was crazy. We should have, would have, could have. would have been smarter move to sign with Roadrunner at the beginning of Suicide City. We ended up signing with a label called The End. Well, MSI did an album with The End, too. So was there a reason? Is that connection made that way, too? So No Holds Barred is, you know, essentially a, a live show of the Mataleo tour. Mataleo means rear naked chokehold, basically. I mean, lion killer, literally, but. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It was, <laughs> uh, uh, I thought it was, a. I really hated how, and I still, I never liked this part of the, the, the part of this industry where you create something and then everybody sells, they ask you, what, what do you mean by it? And I always looked at it like, whatever, you go to a museum or you go stand in front of, the Mona Lisa or a Van Gogh painting or, or whatever the artist that created doesn't stand there and tell you what they envisioned and what their, their meaning behind it was. And I always thought I, even though it's hardcore and metal and punk rock, it's still, I look at this, I, I look at myself as an artist. I create something that lasts forever out of nothing, just a pure inspirational spark that gives me this idea and it, and it grows into something bigger, um, than the idea the music industry makes money off of it magazines um you know kind of like uh exploit it and everything it's just one big industry we all know how it works but i hated how like a lot of journalists were like what did you mean by this what do you mean by that and i always looked at it like well it's whatever you get from it you know i have my songs and my lyrics have my the meanings to me they all did for biohazard for all my bands um and i just never liked 
you know, putting things in stone. Some of the biohazard stuff was very blatant and very obvious what we, what we meant. Um, and over the years, I've gotten less blatant. But with that record, it was, I remember when I came up with the idea of the title, I was like, you know what? Let's just go with this and let's not tell anybody what it meant. You know, it was Portuguese, especially at the time, was a, uh, a, you know, it wasn't like it was Spanish or German. We didn't tell anybody what it meant. And I remember so many journalists were like, what's it mean? Like, it's whatever you want it to mean. It kind of backfired. People were just like, whatever. It didn't really, it was just so stupid. Um, but the, there's a lot, the, the lion has always been the symbol of Babylon. And it, it had a lot of tie-ins to, I, you know, at the time I was really in, still into jujitsu. Matileo is a Portuguese term for um, rear naked choke, which you mentioned at first, um, but it had deeper meaning to it. I even heard a crazy twist on it was Bobby and I are both Leos. We're both born in July. And that was the first record without Bobby. And it was people had asked me if that had reference to that, which I thought was a giant reach because <laughs> the last thing we want to do was to split up with Bobby. It's just that that was the situation we were going through at the time. And to, to move forward, that's the decision we had to make. Well, what I was going to say is that the cover of No Holds Barred is, in fact, a rear naked chokehold. So I thought that it was very uh, thematically fitting that it's like this tour of that album. And then you kind of are putting it a little bit more literally as to what and that could just be coincidence. But maybe you're about to shatter my well, whole world. It is. It's, it's a uh, it's a playoff of that. And I always think of the yeah. movie with Hulk Hogan and Zeus. No holds barred. <laughs> yep. And then years later, to go full circle with Powerflow, who you just played Juggalo Day with in what 2020, a year ago, you did yeah. the theme song for NXT, which is a WWE property. So really, this all the genesis of all of this is is at this point. This this precipice. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's. I think that the underlying theme is that we're, we're, um, we're warriors, you know what I mean? And we are road dogs, road warriors, no pun intended for the movie or the, or the wrestlers, but it, it was always an underlying theme, but biohazard, you know, since I was a little kid, it's always a bit about, um, surviving and finding a way to survive. And I thrive to survive. You know, I think the, 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 Online theme. We were wrestling fans as kids. Juggalos, ICP dudes. Um, we're huge. Are big into wrestling, and we're big in wrestling. I'm also very close with um, Vampiro, but uh, he's a good buddy. We talk a couple times a week. So there's a lot of ties. Yeah, Vampiro and ICP were not only a tag team together in WCW called the Dark Carnival, and also the Deadpool, but also Vampiro was he was like in a rap group with them called Dark Lotus. But that, the ICP show you mentioned earlier, that was the last show. I remember I came home from tour. I was on tour with Billy Bio um, in Europe with, it was a huge tour with, it was called Persistence Tour with um, Gorilla Biscuits, Agnostic Front, H2O, Wisdom and Chains, Street Dogs, Cutthroat, Count Time, two bands that I produced that are coming out with new records. Anyways, we came home from that tour and that was like the big tour. It was like, you know, just three weeks straight. And then um, we ended up in London when Kobe, Kobe died um, on the last show. We came home and the world shut down. It was, we came home right before Super Bowl, But I forgot that right before the, like literally the week 
everything in middle of March, we played with ICP in downtown LA. And uh, it was, the, the turnout wasn't that great. The, the COVID shit was just getting underway and people I think were a little sketchy. I think there's two types of people in the world that, that aren't affected by COVID. It's Juggalos and, and Biohazard fans. <laughs> and when it was raining both nights, um, but it was cool. It was a, that was the last show I played with Powerful, with any any band. You know, Biohazard is is a huge part of your career, but certainly not the only part of it, and, and not the one that's even had the longest time with me personally. So Power Flow is interesting specifically because it's a amalgamation of all these other bands that are important to me too. You got Christian from Fear Factory, who of course have a the Roadrunner connection, and Christian himself has, you know, a list of credits that are a mile long as well. You uh I think you mentioned that maybe he's not a part of it anymore, but Roy from Downset at one point, right? Yep. Yep. And uh and then of course Sendog, who was in or still is in Cypress Hill. I, I went and saw SX10 with Zebrahead at Canes in San Diego in like the year 2000. So I remember seeing him do the rock band thing even back then. Uh, even Cypress Hill with the Skull and Bones record, they did a lot of rock-oriented stuff. Uh, they did Taz's theme song. So, you know, Powerflow does the NXT theme song. So it's all very much intertwined. But Powerflow is interesting to me because I thought it was going to kind of sound like all those bands' ingredients thrown together, and it really doesn't sound like any of them which I think is probably uh, something that I would imagine you're proud of, that it's not a regurgitation of something you've done in the past. A little bit of everything and nothing enough of, of one. Um, and I remember when we were doing it, um, Christian, and not Christian, Christian wasn't in the band until we went in the studio and, and actually tracked the record. But while we were writing, um, Roy came into the studio with Sendog and they, um, and Senator I, I've been friends since we worked together on some biohazard stuff and a bunch of guest vocals here and there, um, guest tracks, and, and, um, and always wanted to do something together. So they came to me and asked me if I wanted to be down with this new project they had. And I was at the time working on a new biohazard record. Uh, pretty much, I, I told the guys, I said, I'm not into, you know, I'm down to produce for you, produce you guys. I'm down to write for you, but I, I don't want to tour and take time away from my family you know, we had young kids and I, you know, I, I if I do it, it's going to be for biohazard and I want to, I'm dying to do a solo record. So make a long story short, um, I said, and I would get together every Sunday night for like six months, not like four or five months, maybe. And after football, we're both big football fans and we write songs. And after a bunch of songs, we went in the studio and it, it's kind of, you know, some crazy shit that went on to get there. But we didn't never had a band. We didn't really sit down and, and discuss um, like a, it was no plan of action. We, it was almost similar to Biohazard. We kind of just it's like we, you get a bunch of cool shit. You throw it against the wall. Whatever sticks you go with. So we were finishing recording and Christian was in the band then and, and Fernando. So originally, as I was writing with Sen, Roy was in the band, but Roy was never there. For the writing it was just Sen and I on, on on Sunday nights. Like I said, you know, he'd bring a bunch of beer and a bunch of weed and a bunch of his buddies, and we'd all just hang out, write songs, and you know, we were in the studio, finished tracking everything. And my drum, our drummer Fernando, he said to me, "What do you think, man? 
this is great. We're all friends. We're having a good time. We're partying. You know, let's do something cool. And, and I'm like, I look around. Everybody's laughing. It was a, giant, a huge party. I'm like, fuck it. Yeah, let's do it. And then that was like the beginning of calling it Powerflow, but there was still no name. Sen calls me up one day and said, hey, I've been thinking about this idea. Roy came, you know, came up with this, the name of the way Sen was spitting over the heavy riffs. And he was called, it was like, he called it, it was like, he's, you're kind of like power flowing over it. And, and Sen was like, what do you think of the name power flow? And at first I was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't like it that much. And now of course it's grown on me, but we didn't really give it much thought. And then it became a, a, a real thing. Record came out. We went on tour and did pretty well. Had a great fucking time. It wasn't like we were, we're all for like bigger bands. We were doing it because we liked to do it. And we were okay with being in a van and slugging it out and, and going out for no money and not having a crew. And now we're working on record number two. Were any of these See? songs things that he had left over? Because it seems like Sens wanted to front a rock band since I've known of his existence, you know, between doing the Cypress Hill, Skull and Bones, and then SX-10, and then he's on guest spots of rock bands. Like, is, is this stuff he had been kind of working on over the years and he got to kind of bring it to fruition with <clears> you? When we were writing... There was no sound of the band. And I, as a big Cypress Hill fan, I love the bounce and the grooviness that Muggs brings to the table. And those guys spit over it. Sen, as a fucking metalhead, which he's, I swear, he's more into metal than he is in hip hop. And he was a big Biohazard fan. We, we met when we, in early 90s, when we did a song together called How It Is for Biohazard. But every writing session, it was like, we'd go back and forth. And, and I'm like, no, 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 let's, I, I want to keep it more bouncy and groovy, like your stuff. And he's like, no, no, I want to keep it more metal and more aggressive, like your stuff. So that was the back and forth. And we kind of came up with this thing that was, um, you know, kind of like, a, 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 I wouldn't say middle of the road between our ideas, because I think it wasn't like a compromise. Compromise in art is fucking whack. And I think the extreme op opinions are always what's best. So meeting in the middle, it's kind of like, it's one or the other. I think you should just fight it out and let the two extremes, you know, one of them win. But Powerflow was kind of like put together without really a plan and the going back and forth with, with between Sen and I, keeping it more bouncy versus keeping it more aggressive. And with this new record, we nailed it with the last record. I'm really happy with how it came out. But this record is everything that we liked about favorite parts, favorite songs to play live. And the new record has, we kind of took all those elements that kind of stuck out and grabbed us a lot and magnified by, you know, a thousand. So it's, it's like crack cocaine boiled down and purified power flow. Yeah. The song that always stood out to me on that album that sounded like something of you doing something totally different is the grind. Cause it has like that kind of weird synthy stuff. That I don't think I've ever heard you do, even on you know something like Suicide City, which is nothing like Biohazard or Powerflow. There's not like electronic elements really on it a whole lot. So I thought that was interesting on that song in particular. Yeah, and I did a really awesome video. It took me fucking six months to make with my buddy from Hungary. But that 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 sound actually is guitar. I work with a company called Earthquaker Devices. I I create everything in the studio, and sometimes in the mad scientist state that we're in here um i create something and forget what i what i did because it's plugging one pedal into another and coming up with a sound that's like wow it's fucking amazing and then you move on and the song you know 
becomes, it grows and grows and grows this monster. And then when it comes time to doing the record, you're like, how did I fucking make that sound? And you, you don't remember. It's a guitar, but I just use a bunch of different effects to make it, and it end up sounding like a synthesizer. How did Resistance get chosen as the NXT theme? We're all fans of uh, extreme sports, and I, I, there's not much more extreme than than wrestling and, and UFC. UFC wasn't interested in any of my music <laughs> yet. I'm still trying to get there, but I've been a big fan of, of wrestling for years. Same with Sen. Um, we actually had a chance, besides them picking up the song, um, we had a chance to, uh, to, we played Download in England. Um, it was in 2017, I think, 2018. And NXT was doing a match. So we, we met Alistair. He was, I met a bunch of wrestlers, but um, we, you know, we did, came out and did an introduction and, and did like a cool little thing. We sat ringside for the match and it was a fucking blast, bro. It was amazing. I felt like I was 12 years old again. Going like, yeah, but I, I thought that was cool because that was the first time I heard that song was on NXT. I, I would love to like even just write a song for them. I have like a solo career now under under Billy Bio, and now that there's no Biohazard, it's kind of like a way for me to keep that side of, of my personality alive. So I'm on working on second record now. It's going to come out later this year, and just finishing final touches on that. You asked me a question about Sen earlier. I mean, Sen can speak for himself, but he's a he's a fucking metalhead, bro. That dude, Motorhead, Megadeth, Maiden, Metallica, Pantera. He just loves singing fucking Pantera songs. Uh, <laughs> but he's a metalhead. Well, yeah, because growing up, like I said, he always had those. So he was on a Funk Junkies song. Insolence, which is another like rap rock band, uh, Reveille around the same time. He was on, on all these rap rock tracks. That's kind of the vibe I got that he like desperately wanted to front this rock band. And then it seems like Power Flow is kind of desperate. You know, I'm not saying like he, he's, he, but he just, he, it was something that he needed to get out of him that he wasn't really getting satisfied in Cypress Hill. And I feel like Power Flow, he finally kind of gets to, to do that because Power Flow's like, I mean, it's not like SX10 in a lot of ways, but it's, it's like if SX10 was performed by more skilled musicians. SX10 was very like demo garage band <laughs> sounding. You know what I mean? It was a little, a little rough yeah. around the edges. I think what he really likes is do, he's very creative and we get along great in that genre. It's always grinding. We're always working on something new and something different. So he likes having a, like a parallel music career, doing something else that he likes to do in addition to his stuff with cypress hill so sx10 was something that he did after we and i think he still credits us as, as being the first band that gave him a taste of of spitting over metal and and heavy music um so soon after we did that track together how it is with biohazard he started sx10 and i remember um hearing the demos and then he was supposed to get a record deal and then and then it's like almost like they dropped off the face of their life. For us, I think Power Flow, it's almost like he gets to do what he wanted to do with SX10. Like you said, not so not a diss on those dudes as players, but we have more experience doing what we do. And there's we know how to do it. So there's there's uh, you know, we got our shit together when you know 
we're we're well rehearsed. When we get together with Sen, we have the songs down, and I think he likes that. Well, going back to how it is with Sen, of course, DJ Lethal, also a part of that song, who's also on Mataleo. Yep. But yep. the cool thing about that for me is that when he's on uh, State of the World, he's not, you know, Limp Bizkit isn't a thing yet. He's still House of Pain, which is still, a, of course, a, a big deal at the time. And then you kind of, you know, s- stick with him throughout the years or he sticks up with you. But how did that relationship form with you and, and Lee? We did a tour with House of Pain. We were actually on tour with Cypress uh, Pantera, played in New York. And later, after, at, I think later on that night, um, House of Pain was playing at the Palladium. I can't remember where they played on 14th Street in Manhattan. And we, we went over and played a couple songs. But I remember it was, it was like chaotic tour. And we did two shows in one night, hung out with Danny uh, Everlast and, and Eric and the guys. And, um, and that led to a tour with House of Pain. And it was Biohazard at House of Pain. And we took out Corn on their first tour. But during that tour, we, hung, we got all along really well with fucking with the House of Pain guys. Lethal was a fucking good, good dude. Uh, Danny Boy left in the middle of the tour for some personal stuff. Um, and they had Scotty Ann come out and filled in for Danny Boy. That was pretty fucking badass. But Eric Everlast is a fucking great dude. Super fucking talented. Way before Whitey Ford. And we saw that whole thing start to come up. And all my years touring with so many different bands. On days off, you go about your you, you go your separate ways. But on that tour, bro, Estevan tour managing them, who's a fucking great dude. Really awesome photographer. Pretty famous dude in L.A. Um he was a tour manager, and so we linked up every day off. We stayed in the same fucking hotels. We went to, the, and then we all go out and party. So that's how we got close. That's a little different, you know. There, a lot of bands that you know do collabs. There's money involved. I remember having huge fucking artists doing tracks together, and the, you know, people are just shut. You know, fucking record companies, I should say, are just you know cutting checks for a hundred grand, and then meanwhile the public thinks that they're they're homies, and meanwhile it's just a business deal. Well, a collaboration that you kind of have that's part of the Biohazard lore is that the Biohazard famously was uh, fans of Carnivore. You like you guys loved Carnivore, right? Am I speaking out of school here? Okay. Um, And Pete Steele is on on Civilization, but it's kind of like just this spoken word thing. It's not like, you know, really part of the song. So was there a song that you guys were going to do together and then it just kind of didn't work out. So you just had them do that spoken word thing. Or it seems like this would be a big moment in the, the biohazard canon to have this Peter Steele collaboration. And then it's kind of less of a song and more of like a part. Yeah. I remember um, Pete came in the studio late one night and that record was the first record that we produced on our own. Um, we did it underneath the Brooklyn bridge at, at a, our studio called rat piss studios. But Pete came in to do um, a track with us. And it was like till like four or five in the morning. And it ended up not really turning out to be a, a collab song. And it was ended up being this, this outro. But that was put together in a very, at a very weird time for the band. I remember it ended up, you know, it was like we did a song with Jamie from Haybreed, uh, Roger from AF, and one thing after another there was more and more friends involved and it ended up becoming like, like a, we are the world as a record where everybody fucking joined in and it kind of diluted it and made it more about a, 
it ended up becoming a stick rather than about each song. Um, I, we, I remember our guitar player quit in the middle of it. So we had this other dude playing and then we right, right before we finished the record, he quit. It was a really fucking weird and odd time for the band. And looking back, there were some people that we did collabs with that I'm still, obviously I'm close to everybody, but there was some weird thing with the Slipknot track. It was really cool and awesome, but the way I put the way I put it together was an, just an awkward kind of collab. It's like a they come in in the middle of the song and play, and then we finish the song. But the thing about Pete really is a thorn in my side. Pete was instrumental in the beginning of Biohazard, not just because he gave us the idea of calling the band Biohazard, but he, for me as an artist, I remember sitting there, Pete was doing, he, Carnivore was done, he was doing this band Repulsion, and he invited us down to see him play, and we were, they were right down the street from where we used to rehearse on Quentin Road, he was on, um, they were literally like five blocks away. And we went to see them and they weren't typo negative yet. They were called repulsion. And after the, he was like, so what do you guys think? And we, I remember I looked and I was like, it's fucking slow. It's fucked. It was like cutting carnivore into like eighths and playing it that slow. It was like a fraction of the speed of what we were used to from Pete. And as carnivore fans, we love that aggression. We love that, that angst, that energy that he had going on. So he did something. So it was like such a left turn and unexpected and it worked out great for him. He, he really, you saw what he um, was destined to be as a songwriter, as a performer, as, as a composer, as a lyricist, as an artist. And I, I, my respect for him grew immensely after that. And especially because he was doing something different at a time when that kind of different wasn't accepted. Everybody like heavy and fast was like the shit. And it was like early nineties and Pete was just sticking to his guns and created a niche for himself. So looking back, I wish that we would had gave that a little bit more attention. And I, I, I don't think Pete was, he, he didn't want to, do more. I don't remember where our heads were at, but I just remember looking back after and thinking, I remember thinking back many times that I, I wish we would have gave that a little bit more of a twist. Yeah. I remember when I first heard it, that that's what I thought I was almost kind of, um, I guess what I want to say let down. Cause it wasn't that, you know, when I saw, you know, I had the hype sticker on it, kind of like you said, not to call it a shtick, but this is 2001. So soul flies primitive has just come out the year before where he's got a ton of guests. So this is kind of like a thing that, bands were doing they were getting a lot of guest spots on it so on civilization not only has a lot of guests but it's a lot of roadrunner bands it's got you know guys from sepultura pete roger that you mentioned Corey from slipknot so i was like oh this yeah, will be yeah. cool it's gonna be all these collaborations i loved how soulfly did this and biohazard doesn't really do that outside of spots here and there and i remember when that song came on and he does a little spoken thing i was like Is, that's it like he's not he's not part of this song yeah. anymore than that just an upside down time for us we had a a manager Dan Beck, great dude, who was a, and I think still is, but he was like the marketing guy at Epic, and he was behind uh, Michael Jackson history. He was there for Ozzy biting the bat off, biting the head off a bat. 
So the dude has a lot of history in marketing and music industry and wanted to become a manager. But he also, he was deaf. He lost his hearing because of metal, because of rock and roll, and was a big proponent of spreading the word and protecting your, you know, your hearing among, amongst rock fans. So the funny thing is, is that it was like we had a manager who's walking around telling everybody how great our new record is. But the punchline is, so how do you know if you can't hear it? Well, I love that album. When Uncivilization came out, when I first heard Sellout, oh, that was, that was it for me. I, I thought that was the coolest thing. Yeah, that was, I wrote that song. It's a great, I love that one. It's, um, that record, I think, didn't get, um, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? You cry over spilled milk. It came out September 11th. It fucked the whole industry up. Our, we were leaving for tour the next day. That tour got canceled, um, and it, it just kind of took the wind out of everybody's sails, you know? Rob, his first recording with Biohazard is the No Holds Barred live album. Yeah, Rob was the first guy that we got after Bobby. So I know, of course, he was in Helmet. He was on the Betty record. But did you know him from being in Rest in Pieces from the, the hardcore scene? Of course, yeah, because we're from New York. That's probably why. That's one of the main reasons why he fit well with us. He was completely opposite of Bobby in a lot of ways. But being a New Yorker, we knew we probably wouldn't be able to get along with anybody else. Well, that's a, such an interesting thing for me with Biohazard, too. And I'd like to hear your perspective of it. And maybe we, that's how we can kind of close it out. Do you think that Biohazard is considered like a New York hardcore band because of all the friends that you had and the shows that you played coming up? Or is it because of the actual sound of the music is New York hardcore? We never fit in with anyone, Biohazard. We, we kind of created our own thing and it, it was just Biohazard. That's it. As much as, it, as an influence that New York Hardcore is and was on me, I love, and to be, to be like best friends with Agnostic Front, like a band that I, the first real New York Hardcore band that I fucking loved, Warzone 2, Chromags. But to be friends with all those guys is still mind boggling for me. But we never raised the flag. We never called ourselves New York hardcore as much as we loved it. And I, maybe for me, I always kind of wanted to be a part of it, but I knew that that wasn't our thing. It was an influence of ours, but hip hop and metal were also big influences at a time when people weren't mixing things. Like, you know, you're either hardcore or you were metal. And we came up and when we played with hardcore shows, we were too metal. And when we played metal shows, we, were, we weren't metal enough. So we didn't fit in anywhere. And what, at, as difficult and as, um, I, I think that held us back at the beginning because record labels kind of felt that. I, they didn't say it, but they felt that we weren't metal enough or we, were, we weren't hardcore enough. So we didn't really fit in anywhere. So we kind of just, when all the record labels turned us down, we just turned our backs on everybody and said, fuck it. You know what? Let's just do what we do. Who gives a fuck? And then it was then when we really didn't care that people were interested. And then, then the 400, the 40 people turned into 400 people at Lamore and then quickly turned into, you know, a thousand and so forth. And then people started um, paying attention to us. But I remember it got back to us that Rick Rubin talked shit about us and said that we were three chord thrash band that'll never go anywhere. And then one day we were playing CBGBs. We sold out show and this dude comes up and he gives me his card he sits down with me and my manager and he's like, I'm like, who are you with? And he was like, oh, with Chrysalis Records. I'm like, 
what what do you want with us? You know, we're like, you know, and I, I didn't, there was no connection yet. And then he said, oh, Rick Rubin sent me down to check you guys out. And I, I'd love to sit down and talk more with you. You guys are fucking really awesome. The show was so fucking energetic, blah, 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 blah. Smoke up my ass. And I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. Rick Rubin sent you? He goes, yeah. I said, Rick said that we were a piece of shit fucking hardcore band that will never go anywhere. And I gave him his car back. I said, no, thanks. And walked away. So we kind of did our own thing and created unintentionally created it's almost like i think when we turned our backs and just kind of put our nose to the grindstone and we let the hip-hop influence and then let the metal come out let the hardcore come out and however it happened other people that liked that crossover thing with metal and hardcore were kind of like you know what i like a little bit of hip-hop and i'm not afraid to say it i like a little bit of hardcore and i like metal I like DRI and I like fucking Slayer and I like fucking Agnostic Front. Biohazard is kind of a little mix of everything, but a little different. They got a couple long haired guys. They got a couple hardcore dudes. And we were, you know, we didn't have an image. There was no nothing about us that was flashy. We're just regular dudes. The clothes that we wore on stage were the same clothes that we wore loading our gear. And we were the same dudes watching other bands before us and after us in the pit. So, it was kind of like we just just did our own thing and the the industry kind of came around to us on our terms. I, I you know, I, you know, I heard, you heard me talk great stuff about Roadrunner, but you can't name another band that did a one-off record with Roadrunner. So we kind of pulled the game and pulled the, called the shots, you know, how we wanted to call them. And when we went and did that one-off with Roadrunner, all of our friends were like, what? How did you do one record? We signed a Roadrunner for fucking seven records. That's like the type. Pete told me the same story. Sepultura, Fear Factory, Machine Head. Everybody told me the same fucking thing. And we just did our thing. Not just once with Roadrunner. We came back and did it with the live record. So it wasn't like we weren't, you know, smart businessmen. We, we weren't trying to, like, manipulate, our, you know, the situation, but we made some smart moves. We were signed to some shitty fucking record label out of Long Island and sold the rights to our merchandise to get off the record label. And that was the smartest and the worst decision of my career and enabled me to go on further and sign a deal with Roadrunner. Roadrunner, we split the cost of punishment video. And then when we want to do the video for Shades of Grey, they said, no, they, they didn't have the budget. So we paid for the video ourselves. So that was a smart move because Headbangers Ball was all over punishment. It gave them something else to fucking do. And then while we were, while um, Shades of Grey was keeping the ball rolling, we were working on State of the World Address. And then Headbangers Ball picked up and started doing in-studio reports. And we got the muscle of fucking Warner Brothers behind us. And then it just kept everything just going. And we fucking knocked a lot of doors open, you know, from from Vinny and Roger have told me and many bands have told me, you know, they were going to Europe, Cro-Mags. They were going to Europe and making, you know, 500 bucks a show when nobody knew who New York Hardcore was. We weren't New York Hardcore, but we came from New York and we blew down a lot of fucking doors and made it so, you know, when we were playing fucking festivals and, and headlining fucking Dynamo, then bands like Madball and Sick of It All 
and, and Agnostic Front started playing bigger shows and getting paid way more money. I don't look at it like we paved the way for them because those bands were out. A lot of those bands were out before us, but we definitely brought a lot of light to what was happening in the, in, in the New York underground scene and made it so more into the limelight. And not just the hardcore scene, but the metal scene and, and bands, you know, like Typo Negative and then t- Life of Agony, too. Those dudes fucking went on and did some great things. You see that Lady Gaga t-shirt? Yeah, man, that's sick. rocking a Biohead shirt? You know, you can say what you want to say, but th- that homegirl is a fucking New Yorker and she's a metalhead. And I got nothing but respect for her. She's super talented. And Alan Roberts from Life of Agony did the artwork for the t-shirt. But that was like before we did a, even a record. It was a demo t-shirt uh, you know from our demo scarred for life my my daughter and her little homegirl friends were like my stock <laughs> went up fucking tenfold dude yeah it's funny that people keep on saying that is that uh they're like you know say whatever you want about lady gaga but i don't know anybody that has no like i think i feel like lady gaga is universally very well respected in in all stretches it, of the you're universe. right dude yeah I, I don't think i never heard anybody say anything bad about her it's just that any. I guess it's the pop. She's a pop singer. And in the pop world, pop artists get a bad rap. Post Malone singing one of my fucking songs. He was singing Tales from the Hard Side, word for fucking word. And I'm like, those are my fucking words. What the fuck? He was a Biohazard fan and knew Tales from the Hard Side. And I was like, what the? That was a fucking another freaky thing. So come to find out, he's another fucking metalhead. Just did a song with Ozzy. I want to go see him one day and, and, and chew it up, find out really what he knows about Biohazard, because that was fucking badass to hear him sing it. You can wear a t-shirt, but when you can fucking sing my lyrics, you're an OG right there. Yo, thanks so much to Billy for taking the time to share these stories with us, and of course, you can hear much more in much detail on his Patreon at patreon.com slash billybiohazard. And you can hear much more from me, which I know you're dying to do, every week on the Meet Me podcast, wherever you get podcasts. And check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash meetmepod. If you want to support the show, there's a couple of little bonus episodes and things like that on there. But uh, ultimately, it's just you showing your appreciation all the cool stuff coming your way and there's more to come so in the meantime and in between time my name is ryan rainbow this is meet me and yes that's the best i could come up with bye